Hello, welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO. And today we are off-site recording with a special guest, a good friend of mine, someone who's been part of the Project Purple family for quite some time, Dr. Brett Shipper who is actually, full disclosure, you're on our board at Project Purple, have been on our board. We might talk about how you got on the board, which is kind of a funny story. Sure, yeah. Uh, But Brett, thank you for joining us on the Project Purple podcast. Thank you very much, Dino, for having me. It's a pleasure. So for our audience listening at home, Dr. Shipper, I know you as Brett, because we know each other pretty well, but Dr. Shipper uh, is the Director of Oncological Surgery at the Hartford Healthcare Network here in Hartford, Connecticut, but that expands quite a bit. And we were talking a little bit before we started recording about some new hospitals that Hartford now has under their kind of umbrella. Um, And what we always do for our listeners at home, Brett, is we kind of give our guests an opportunity to kind of share kind of their background and and maybe we'll talk about kind of some of those new relationships as we were talking about as far as the umbrella of Hartford Healthcare. But with that, why don't you share a little bit of your background? And as I always say with our guests, you can go as deep as you want, or you can go uh, as as high level as you want as well. Right. So the choice is yours. Make the right one. Well, since Dino and I go way back, he knows most of my personal stories. So we'll stick it to professional stories today. Yeah. Um, so I'm a surgical oncologist. Uh, and what that means is I did training in general surgery and then advanced training in surgical oncology. And my practice focuses heavily on hepatobiliary uh, disease, which means liver and pancreas and biliary disease. Um, I am originally from New York, uh, but came back to this area almost eight years ago now. Um, and currently, as Dino mentioned, am, uh, at, uh, is part of Hartford Healthcare, where I'm the chief of surgical oncology here at Hartford Hospital, and also, as he said, the director of oncologic surgery for the Cancer Institute at Hartford Healthcare. Um, Hartford Healthcare is growing by leaps and bounds, as you mentioned. We do have uh, what we call regions. Um, so we have the Hartford region here locally. Uh, we have the Central region, which is uh, the Hospital of Central Connecticut uh, and Midstate. We have uh, the East region, which is Charlotte Hunger. I'm sorry, which is Bacchus <clears throat> and Wyndham. Uh, we also have Charlotte Hungerford, um, and now most recently we have St. V's down in Bridgeport. So the umbrella is is growing. Uh, but what we're really striving for is one standard of care amongst all the hospitals and really aligning uh, the values and the patient experience to be of the highest quality so that our patients get uh, the same experience no matter where they are in the system and the same top quality care no matter where they are in the system. That was really high level and really quick. So I'm gonna, <laughs> dr- I'm gonna bring us back a little bit and talk a little bit about you, Brett. Um, and again, this is uh, this is easy for me since we know each other pretty well. But why GI cancer focus for you when you when you did your rotations as you as most well all medical students do every rotation right they right. they try to get yep. kind of a we feel move for, around yeah and for our listeners at home when you go to med school you just don't necessarily most people just don't go in and focus in on let's say oncology sure um, they'll do rotations in uh, childbirth. Mm-hmm. Uh, peds, oncology, ortho, depending on their specialty, right? If you're going in as a surgeon or as Mm -hmm. a general practitioner, but why did you get involved in GI cancers? Sure. It's a great question. So 
Uh, as you mentioned, I always knew I wanted to be a surgeon. Um, I'll admit I wasn't quite sure what kind of surgeon, but I knew before even going to medical school, if I was going to do medical school, I wanted to be a surgeon. Um, there, the, the aspect of surgery of number one, being able to use your hands. Um, I was always a kid who liked to tinker and take things apart and put it back together and things were broken. They always give it to me and say, here, see if you can fix this. You know, that was just kind of who I am. Um, so I knew I always wanted to be a surgeon. Um, as far as what kind of surgeon, um, during your surgical residency after medical school, uh, the first step is to do a surgical residency where you get exposed to thoracic surgery and plastic surgery and surgical oncology and all these other specialties. And to be honest, I actually thought I wanted to be a plastic surgeon for a while. Uh, and I did two years of research uh, looking at tissue engineering um, and what's something called composite tissue allo uh, allograft transplantation, which is like hand transplants and face transplants. Um, and then I did my surgical oncology rotation and I was like, wow, this is amazing. Um, and I actually uh, matched into a plastic surgery fellowship um, and was hesitant because I had really gotten exposed to the surgical oncology world late and said, I'm not sure if that's, you know, I may not really want to be a plastic surgeon. I may want to do this complex GI surgery. But I said, I got this great fellowship. Let me go with it. And I went with it. And within a few months, I realized my heart was really in surgical oncology. And I actually left that fellowship and went back to do a surgical oncology fellowship. So for me, it was about uh, multiple factors. One, it was about uh, the technical side. I think the operations are really fantastic when you're the technical uh, skills it takes and the, and the nuances and fineness of these operations is like no other. Um, the patient population, I think, is really unique. Um, and also just the fact around cancer surgery in general. Uh, cancer tumors don't read a textbook. You know, as a mm -hmm. surgeon, you learn a lot from reading textbooks or seeing how other people do it. And no two cancer operations are ever really the same because the tumors do what they're going to do. So to take out, you know, you can have five people with pancreas cancer who all need an operation. And each one of those operations is going to have some differences and some nuances. And you kind of have to figure it out on the fly a little bit. Okay, how am I going to get this one out? And what, what maneuvers am I going to do that I'm going to need in this one versus that one? So I, I like that challenge of it. Um, so that's what kind of drew me to GI uh, cancer. So was your first GI cancer that you sat in on or assisted, was it a Whipple? Um, no, I mean, it was not necessarily Whipple. It was, uh, uh, so I trained at University of Pittsburgh yeah. where it's a, uh, a very prominent surgical oncology program. So we saw all sorts of different cancers, but again, what I really liked about the Whipple operation was again, the, the, the art of the surgery itself really, you know, the Whipple operation is sort of the uh, mother of all operations, if you will. It takes, you know, multiple operations and puts them together in one big operation. Um, and you really need to be able to do it well uh, to be successful. Um, so I really liked uh, the, the uh, type of procedures that went along with the liver surgery, the biliary and pancreatic surgery. And you've never had a personal connection to the disease, no one in your family, thank God. No, luckily I, I haven't had a personal touch to it. Although certainly like many people, I know people who have, who have suffered with it, uh, but um, I haven't had anybody uh, direct relatives. 
And at Pittsburgh, you actually trained under one of our uh, first grantees, uh, yeah, Jim Moser. Jim Moser, who now is no longer at Pittsburgh, and neither is his your other mentee, Herb Zay. Yep, who's now down, I believe, at MD Anderson. Correct? Uh, he's or in Texas. Texas, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, those two guys were were the two people who really taught me. You know, uh, there was maybe one or two others, but the two main guys who really taught me how to do pancreatic surgery. So it's been great now as a. Uh, as an attending and, and building a practice and, and building a program, getting to interact with those guys on a professional level and, and working with like Jim Mosier through Project Purple and, and being able to support some of his work. Um, it, the, the pancreatic surgery and hepatobiliary surgery community is a real small community. Um, there is not, it's not like the primary care world where there is, you know, thousands upon thousands of these primary care doctors. Um, the hepatobiliary world is a much smaller world and everybody kind of knows everybody and, and kind of helps everybody. And there's a lot of collaboration, which is another thing I really like in that, um, you know, even here locally in the state, you know, um, I know most of the big players in the field, you know, whether they're at Yale or other sites here in Connecticut, and we all kind of work together. And, and Project Purple has been a great resource to bring people together, you know, knocking down walls between institution or, you know, other political barriers to just say, hey, listen, let's move aside from all the barriers and let's really work hard to move the bar on pancreatic cancer. You know, as you well know, the bar on pancreatic cancer is just terrible. You know, the survival back in the 70s and 80s was 3 or 4%. And now here in 2020 almost, we're at, you know, 9% or something. Percent, yeah. So we're still below 10%, you know, all this time later. So there's so much work to be done around pancreatic cancer. Who do you think was your biggest influence to this point in your career in terms of the, the path that you've taken, Brett? Oh, boy, that's a good question. Um you From know, a medical standpoint, you know. And yeah, like, and yeah, I would say um, really my mentors back at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, I remember uh, the chairman there, Dave Bartlett, who is now the head of the SSO, the Surgical Society, uh, the um, Surgical Oncology Society, the main national society. He was the head of surgical oncology there. And when I did my rotation there, um, at that point I knew I want, you know, I thought I wanted to be a plastic surgeon and, and he said, you know, you did a great job. If you ever change your mind, you know, you come back and tell me and, and, you know, I'd love to, to, you know, I'll, I'll do whatever I can to help you. And when I, uh, made that decision that I didn't, that I thought I was wrong on plastic, I went back to him and said, Hey, you know, Dr. Bartlett, you know, I, I think, I think you were right. I think I really did find my calling here. And he really helped. And he gave me an opportunity right there on the spot. He said, you can start tomorrow. Um, which was, on an un, you know, I went to him for advice on what do I do? And he came back and said, you know, you can start tomorrow, which was a huge game changer in my life. And throughout my career, you know, early on, I leaned on him, you know, for advice and guidance and different things. Um, so I would say as far as being a surgical oncologist, he was really the person that, that made it possible and that uh, gave me the opportunity. Do you miss the lab at all? I know you said you were, and I know from, again, from our personal yeah. uh, relationship that you spent time in a lab, which is usually, I mean, I think nowadays maybe that's a little bit more common, but not so common where you find clinicians, physicians, where they have like this PhD, MD yeah. um, sometimes, or, you know, people that have started in the lab and then they've kind of ventured over to the clinic, whether they're an oncologist or surgical, but, you know, you spent two years in a lab, yeah. um, which typically is not the track that people either go to the research side and right. they're bench work scientists sure. or they're in the clinic yeah. dealing with patients. Well, it kind of depends. In the surgical training world, if you want to 
get into some of the more, um, I would say, competitive fellowships or even some of the more research uh, heavier fellowships, um, you really need to, to put in the effort in the lab. Yeah. So a lot of surgical residents take time in the lab um, to get that experience to help them uh, not only be more competitive for fellowship applications, but also have the knowledge base to be able to continue with research work uh, as as a as an attending and in their practice. Um, so I did two years again in, in looking at adipose derived stem cells, tissue engineering, composite tissue allograft. It was a great experience. I loved it. Um, you know, research is one of those funny things where. You can have the best intentions and sometimes it just doesn't work like you think it would work. Um, I happen to be very lucky. I was in a very productive lab that was very well funded. So we weren't always worried about the dollar. Uh, we had the ability to do lots of great work. Um, and my work uh, was fruitful and, and I had a lot of great publications, both regionally, nationally, internationally. Uh, you know, was able to, to write manuscripts and, and really had a fantastic experience. And uh, I think that that work uh, continues to, to show its, its fruitfulness. For instance, at Hartford HealthCare, we have this uh, accelerator uh, for startups, a startup accelerator that uh, is really unique and cutting edge uh, for programs, accelerators around the country. And I work as a mentor uh, to these startups that are part of the accelerator. And there was a startup that just came through uh, looking at uh, uh, using stem cells uh, to treat cancer. Um, and mixing in chemotherapy, and there's a whole lot to it. But essentially, my background around stem cells uh, and tissue engineering made me a perfect match for this group. Uh, so, uh, you know, that research experience you have, you never know when it's going to come in handy. That's fascinating. Uh, I'm going to shift gears here a little bit, and let's talk a little bit about the disease itself, uh, pancreatic cancer. And in your experience, Brett, and, th and this is kind of a, a loaded question, why do you think pancreatic cancer is so difficult? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things is we have no good early detection. I think that's what really hurts us to move the bar in pancreatic cancer. Obviously, in breast cancer, we have mammogram and colon cancer. We have colonoscopies. And in other cancers, we have screening. We have no good method for screening. The only thing we could potentially do would be to scan everybody at some interval, and that's just not cost-effective or safe. Um, because we don't have any screening, far too many pancreatic cancers get diagnosed too far along in the process when they're unresectable or borderline resectable. And that then leads to less people surviving because we're catching them too far gone when they've already spread or involved major structures that we can't operate on. So I think that uh, is really one of the big factors that has hurt us in moving the bar. You know, the chemotherapies we've been using around pancreatic cancer have been sort of the same for a long time. You know, we're now using fulfurinox and some other combination chemotherapies that are showing some better promise, but there hasn't been that major breakthrough on the chemotherapy front. Uh, radiation has gotten smarter and better, and we have better techniques at, you know, these uh, ways of, of, of sort of, you know, fine point radiation. Um, but again, we haven't found that magic silver bullet to really move the bar. We know that the best case scenario is when you can find it early, when you can cut it out, hopefully it hasn't spread to any lymph nodes or anything else, and you get some chemotherapy and you can survive. But far too few people wind up in that bucket. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, you know, that's where we've struggled. I think 
Where we are moving the bar a little bit is in early detection. And uh, what I mean by that is screening mm -hmm. high-risk people. I think that's sort of where there is a lot of push now to finding out, okay, it's not cost-effective or realistic to just scan everybody. Uh, because the overall incidence in pancreatic cancer in the, in the general population is not super high. But who is the population that is at higher risk? And maybe those people we should find a way to screen early so that we can catch it. And, you know, as you're well aware, a lot of it is genetics, you know, mm -hmm. things like BRCA and Lynch syndrome and all these different things that put you at a higher, you know, incidence for pancreatic cancer. So there's a lot of work right now figuring out what the patient population should be and how should we screen them. Should it be CT, MRI, something called endoscopic ultrasound and what intervals and all this sort of stuff. So I think that's where we're going to start to push the bar forward. I got a question for you, just to back up a little bit, something you said, you said borderline resection. And I think we, as the public hear this often, or patients, and we've got a pretty vast audience. I mean, we've got yeah. survivors, uh, fighters, uh, families that are going through this, uh, people that uh, potentially may get diagnosed with the disease, unfortunately, and then just the general public. Borderline resection in the surgical community for pancreatic cancer is defined as what? Yeah, so that's a great question. So as a surgeon, when I get uh, a patient with pancreatic- And this may vary from surgeon to surgeon, right? Because some Correct. surgeons will will take on cases that normally other surgeons won't. Correct. So I but just want to be- But I think that, that is changing. And, and so uh, as Dino mentioned, you know the definitions around this. So when I get referred a patient for pancreatic cancer for surgery, the first thing I need to do is figure out the, if, what they're going to fall into one of three buckets. They're going to fall into clearly resectable, borderline resectable, or unresectable. Clearly resectable means the tumor is isolated to the pancreas. It's not involving any surrounding structures. Um, there's no, uh, there's nothing that would stop me from being able to successfully cut that out. That's great. The, the unresectable bucket is when the tumor has spread beyond the pancreas and is either metastatic to other sites in the body, whether it's the liver or other sites in the abdominal cavity, um, or it is fully involving major structures in the area to the point that there's no way I can cut that out. There are certain limitations uh, in pancreatic surgery where there are certain key structures that live right where these pancreas tumors tend to grow. There's some major blood vessels that if those blood vessels are involved, we can't cut out those blood vessels. So that's usually what we mean. Um, now there's that middle bucket, that borderline resectable. And what that means is that the tumor has grown and has started to involve some of those things, but hasn't you know, fully encased or fully involved them to the point where um, we know they're never going to be a candidate for surgery. So that patient population is where in the past people have done sometimes bigger operations and tried to remove pieces of vein or whatnot. But I think now the data is showing us that for those borderline resectable patients, they do much better if they get upfront chemotherapy plus minus radiation. And typically what we do is we'll give them chemotherapy, we'll reassess and see if we've gotten any movement on the disease, and then decide if we're going to add in radiation to see if we can get it over the finish line to the point where we can get them from that borderline resectable to resectable. Sometimes we can and sometimes we can't, and we don't know until we try. There, there's even data now to say maybe we should be giving everybody chemotherapy up front, mm -hmm. even if you fall into the resectable 
category do you do better if you get chemotherapy up front? So the pendulum used to sort of be in an area where we would do these big operations and cut out portal veins and, you know, SMVs and all these major structures to now we're saying maybe we should do chemotherapy up front instead of doing these bigger operations. So the pendulum has sort of swung more to the chemotherapy side for these folks. Something that just came up that I took a note here, the anatomy of the pancreas. And I think this is something, and, and you know, most people, most the general public don't even know where the pancreas sits, yeah. uh, but from an anatomic perspective, I know I've always kind of been the school of thought that I, I've always been taught that the pancreas is, there's a couple things. It's very porous. It's almost like a sponge. Mm -hmm. um, so it becomes very difficult to suture. Mm -hmm. it, as you can imagine, if we took a sponge and cut it in half and then right. try to suture that thing back. Um, but then also it, it doesn't have a lot of vascularity in it. And that becomes an issue in administering drugs and stuff like that. But there's also a... a pretty big, is it an artery or a vein that runs through the pancreas? And that's what you mentioned there, that that vein, and that tends to be a big issue a lot of times where the tumor is so close. And in the surgical world, you guys talk about margins, right? You have right. to have enough safe margins to cut out a tumor. And a lot of times the tumors, as I've been told by patients, is too close to that vein to get a successful clean margin. Right. So surgery doesn't become an option. Right. So I'm going to, I'll start with just sort of basic anatomy of the yeah. pancreas. Um, so the pancreas- Because I don't think we've ever talked about this on right. the podcast, which is it's so fascinating to me that, you know, we deal with this yeah. organ, but we've we never- know a lot we, about it. Yeah, yeah, we should actually do, now this got me thinking, we should do an anatomy of the pancreas podcast. Yeah, sure. Just from a Well, I can certainly and, try and try and uh, give you the basics. Um, it's unfortunate it's a podcast and not a TV thing. <laughs> it's a, a lot vlog. better. If we had a vlog, I've right. always said if we had a vlog- It's a lot better with visuals, but yeah. essentially there's a head- if you imagine a, a, a longitudinal structure, that, you know, um, and there's a head, there's a neck, there's a body and a tail, and then there's something called the uncinate, which wraps around. Um, and the thing with pancreatic, so, okay, let me back up. So that's the general parts of the pancreas. And as far as what does the pancreas do, right? We know it can make pancreatic cancer, but what else does it do? Why is it even important? So the pancreas has two main functions. It has what we call an exocrine function and an endocrine function. The exocrine function is about secreting enzymes to help digest food. Um, those, so the pancreas also has a pipe that runs through the whole length of the pancreas. And there's a main pipe that runs the full distance from tail to head. And then there's little side pipes that feed into that main pipe. Um, those digestive juices get produced in the pancreas, put into the pipes, and then those pipes empty out into the intestine. So that's the exocrine function. Then there's the endocrine function, which is about controlling things like diabetes, blood sugar, you know, insulin production, those type of things. Um, so sometimes when we operate on the pancreas, we remove portions of the pancreas. So if you have less gland, you can then develop insufficiency, either exocrine or endocrine. So if you develop exocrine insufficiency, then you're not going to produce enough of these enzymes to digest food. If that happens, we have those enzymes in pill form that we can give you. If you develop endocrine insufficiency, then you can either develop diabetes if you weren't a diabetic before, or if you were a diabetic before, you can have worsening diabetes. Mm -hmm. um, as you said, the pancreas is sort of a spongy organ. Um, so one of the things we worry about in pancreatic surgery is a leak. 
a lot of times we're reconnecting the pancreas. So we're sewing intestine to the pancreas to reconnect that pipe work. Mm -hmm. And we can get a leak because it's spongy and soft. It actually helps us sometimes if patients have pancreatitis or a history of pancreatitis because that inflammation of the pancreas firms it up a little. So sometimes you'll have a firmer gland, which a surgeon we love because then you have a little bit more bite to hold the sutures. Um, the other thing that becomes important when you talk about the anatomy of the pancreas and pancreatic cancer is where in the pancreas these tumors develop. And that also plays into early detection of these tumors. So if you get a tumor in the head of the pancreas, that's where a lot of this pipe work comes together. And the tumor will frequently push on the pipe work and cause a blockage of the pipe. And along with the pancreatic pipe, you also have the bile pipe, which comes from the liver and is where the bile comes down and joins the pancreatic pipe to empty the, into the intestine. When that pipe work gets blocked up, people turn yellow or get jaundice. jaundice yeah. And that's one of the classic signs we talk about for early signs of pancreatic cancer is painless jaundice, meaning you just wake up one day and all of a sudden you're yellow. And jaundice can mean yellowing of the skin, yellowing of the eyes. You can get what's called clay-colored stools or really light stools. You can also get very dark urine. Those are all signs that your bile system is getting backed up and not working correctly. So that's a if, if that should happen, that's a very urgent sign that you need to seek medical uh, advice and, and you know, get worked up quickly. But that only happens if the tumor is in the head of the pancreas. If the tumor is in the tail of the pancreas, there's really not a lot of structures out there for it to push on. So you can have a tumor grow to a much bigger size out there, unknown, because it has nothing to push on, nothing to give you signs. So we always, it's a sort of a double-edged sword because if you have a tumor in the head of the pancreas, you have a better chance of finding it earlier, but it's a much bigger operation sure. to cut out. Where if you have a tumor in the tail of the pancreas, it's a much smaller operation to come out because we just basically cut off the tail of the pancreas and we don't reroute all the plumbing like we do in a Whipple operation. But the downside of the tail tumors are they tend to be found later, later. in stage. Um, there are also different kinds of tumors. There's what we call adenocarcinoma or the garden variety sort of pancreatic cancer. And then there's neuroendocrine tumors, which are more sort of hormonal tumors and kind of different cellular type. Um, the treatments vary a little bit, but it, but essentially, you know, the gold standard is to cut them out. Uh, and I, th I think the for our audience to say at home, and this is probably important, I mean, they're, they're all, the, the two different types of tumors are still in the same family. Absolutely. Uh, and I think the most common uh, example would be uh, Steve Jobs, Aretha Franklin were neuroendocrine neuro tumors, Correct. which I know from science, and I know I've heard this before, they're, they're the slower moving, Correct. not as extremely aggressive. I mean, still not good. Right. They tend to be less aggressive than the adenocarcinoma, but still obviously is not as good. Steve Jobs, you know, and still, Aretha, can, yeah. still can unfortunately. Why is that, Brett, that they are the slower moving? You know, it's a good question. I don't have a, a clear answer to that. It's, it's, you know, it's the cell type, it's the genetics behind it that, that sort of are driving it, that it's just a different animal. Um, I, I can't give you a, a more, you know, scientific answer easily than, than that. It's just, um, you know, a lot of cancer care these days is, this, as science is progressing so fast, yeah. we're really trying to get into the genetics of these tumors and what makes, you know, one person's tumor 
different than somebody else's tumor, you know, and trying to figure out that personalized uh, approach to everybody's cancer that they're all not the same, you know, back yeah. in the seventies or so, you know, every colon cancer was sort of the same, every, you know, breast cancer, cancer was sort of the same. Yeah. And now we're getting so deep into the molecular level of these tumors and the genetics to find, okay, does this tumor have a specific genetic mutation? And if it does, then we can use this particular drug. And if it doesn't, then we can't use this drug. And we're really trying to get to those fine levels to figure out, you know, what in our armamentarium we can use to fight these tumors that are specific to each patient. Here at Hartford Healthcare, we're aligned with Memorial Sloan Kettering. We're part of the, uh, the Memorial Sloan Kettering Alliance. We were actually the first member. So we have access to, to, the, to the same, uh, you know, players and body of work and trials and all these things so that, you know, if you're getting your care here, you know that you're getting the same level of care that you'd be getting if you were at MSK. a place like MSK. Um, and we're aligning ourselves with their standards of care. Um, which gives, you know, patients opportunities to get these new trial drugs and, and these new studies that are out there to try and, you know, move the bar. It's great stuff. So we talked, I, I just want to bring us back a little bit to the anatomy. So depending on where that tumor is and where it resides, and let's assume here um, for this example, it's resectable. Surgery becomes an option and the most common is the Whipple. Well, again, it depends on where in the pancreas it is, okay. you know. So the Whipple, if so, that there's there's really th essentially three different operations you can do depending on where in the gland it is. If it's in the head of the gland, then you need the Whipple operation to take it out, which is a long, could be anywhere from eight to twelve hours, depending on the complexity of the uh, the, the surgery. And for audience listening at home, the reason for that is because really where the pancreas sits and then also the complexity of the surgery, as you mentioned with all, it's kind of a junction box for a lot of the digestive system. So to rework that and to marginalize the tumor and to take what you guys need to take out yeah. does take a long time. Yeah, Eight to 12 hours is a little long. It's probably shorter than that, but it, there can be certainly exceptions where it's a, a longer case. Uh, but yeah, I say eight to 12 hours from the time that the right. patient goes through the right. door to right. when they come Absolutely. out could be a whole day. Absolutely. It's definitely a whole day event. Yeah. Um, so, um, so I'll come back and talk about the Whipple operation cause that's a whole another conversation, but to just quickly outline the three basic operations, you have the Whipple, uh, for disease in the head of the pancreas. If you have a tumor in the tail, then you do what's called a distal pancreatectomy, which is removing the tail of the pancreas. And usually we remove the spleen as well because the lymph nodes that drain the tail also drain the spleen. And to do a good oncologic surgery, you need to remove the draining lymph nodes to be able to determine the stage. Um, so we usually do a distal pancreatectomy as removing the tail of the pancreas and the spleen. Where it gets a little trickier is when the tumor is in the middle of the pancreas. Mm -hmm. There, You can either do an extended Whipple and kind of come over more towards the body. You can do an extended distal and come closer to the head, or you can do something called a central pancreatectomy and just remove the middle of the pancreas. Uh, not as often done, but, but an option. Um, the Whipple operation obviously is the one you hear the most about because that's the sort of the biggest of the operations yeah. and, and uh, can have the biggest side effects and complications and, and issues to talk about. And there are, there are some nuances of that operation, but essentially you, you cut uh, a portion of the stomach, the bile duct, the intestine, and the pancreas, and you take out all of that uh, sort of Grand Central Station area where this is all coming together, 
And then you have to reroute the plumbing to reconnect back the pancreas, the bile duct, and the stomach to the GI tract so that you can eat normally and your body can produce the enzymes and the bile to help digest the food and it can all uh, flow in the right direction. Um, some side effects to that operation can be things, sometimes the stomach doesn't work well after that operation. You can have problems with what we call gastric dysmotility, where the stomach has trouble squeezing the food again. Um, you can have the opposite problem. You can have something called dumping syndrome, where the, it can go too quickly through the stomach. You can have, like we talked about, pancreatic exocrine or endocrine dysfunction. Um, you can have a leak uh, immediately after surgery, which is one of the things we worry most about it, it, as a pancreatic surgeon. You can have a leak from any one of those three connections, the stomach connection, the pancreas, or the bile duct connection. Um, but again, technology is advancing. And now what used to be a huge open operation mm -hmm. is now being done robotically um, through very small incisions, um, which are great for the patient because it's quicker recovery, less pain, and gives them the ability to get back on their feet and back to a normal quality, quality of life sooner. So, you know, it's really come a long way, uh, the, the, the operations for the pancreas. And I, I know in the past, reading the robotic surgery, the robotic Whipple, I should say, also from a healing standpoint, allows that patient then to get chemotherapy treatment a lot sooner than they normally would with a traditional surgery where they have to actually open the patient up because the healing process is that much quicker. Correct. So, you know, we usually wait a few weeks after surgery to start chemotherapy uh, just to let people heal. Yeah. But again, if there's wound issues or other problems, it may delay the start of the chemotherapy. So if a patient is back on their feet quicker, less wound issues, it can certainly lead to, to earlier uh, starts to the chemotherapy. Here at Hartford, Brett, do you guys offer both the robotic option and also the traditional option so with the Whipple? Within Hartford Healthcare, uh, amongst all the sites, we do uh, have sites that offer uh, robotic Whipples. Um, we have sites that offer robotic uh, pancreatic surgery. Yep. Uh, so within Hartford Healthcare, we offer the full spectrum. Awesome. Awesome. So- want to talk a little bit about, and you did mention it a, Brit, a, a bit uh, a while ago, was the signs and symptoms, because I think this is something we're in November, this is going to air at the tail end of November, but still very important for people to be aware of what the sign and symptoms are mm -hmm. of the disease. And I know we talk about that a lot, but you're dealing with this day in, day out. And what are some of the things that you can share with the audience? I know you mentioned jaundice, you know, which is kind of like, I always say like jaundice is always kind of that no brainer, right? right. Like, sure. and, and typically though, by that time, it's sometimes Usually, right. too late. Cats out of the bag. Or yeah. Right a lot of times. I think that's, again, one of the problems is there's not a lot of clear indications for a problem. You know, in, in breast cancer, you feel a mass. In colon cancer, you can start having bloody bowel movements. Right. You know, there's these big, bright red flags. In pancreatic cancer, there's not a lot of – there's signs, but there, those signs can often be attributed to other things as well. For instance, so the jaundice. So that's probably the biggest one that's most related to the pancreas. You can start to have, you know, unexplained weight loss as a sign that you could be developing a cancer. Again, doesn't necessarily mean pancreas could be anything. You can have but abdominal on, – on, on weight loss though, and I think this is important for the audience – Let's define unexplained weight loss. Cause I think people, I've heard like people, patients uh, or survivors that have come on the podcast and said, Hey, like I was working out, like I changed my diet and I did lose like 10 pounds, but because I changed my diet, right. I didn't think about like, oh yeah. wow, like 10 pounds is a lot when you change yeah. your diet to lose in like a month, let's right. say. 
Yeah, I think it gets tricky if you're doing if you if it coincides with a change in lifestyle where you're dieting or exercising, it could be hard to differentiate. But if you know all things are equal and nothing has changed in your lifestyle, and you've lost, and all of a sudden you've 10 lost pounds. 10, 15 pounds over a month for no good reason, you know something's going on. Loss of appetite's another loss one. Loss of appetite, abdominal pain, or back pain can certainly be signs. Again, those are things that are common with a whole host of diseases. So um, hard to say it's definitely pancreatic cancer. Um, you know, those are kind of the big ones. There's not a whole lot. Um, there are things, however, you could do to reduce your risk of developing. We know things like smoking can certainly lead to, you know, higher incidence. We know obesity can lead to higher incidence. Another thing I just thought of is, uh, new onset diabetes is probably one of the biggest things now that's a red flag for us. Um, in the pancreatic cancer world. If you know, if you develop diabetes as a child, you've had it your whole life, you know, not what I'm referring to. I mean, if you're 40, 50 years old and all of a sudden now you're a diabetic. Not due to weight or right. just uh, that's that there's studies to show that that is a, a red flag that they're you know for early detection of pancreatic cancer. So that's that's something that we're looking at a lot now with different research. Um, but otherwise there's not a lot out there. And that's, again, one of the problems with the disease is it's very hard to pick up early unless you get lucky where you get a scan for some, you know, I see patients who get a scan for some other completely unrelated reason and, you find and they find something. And that's, you know, the silver bullet and the, the luck of some people, but that's, that's few and far between. So we mentioned this previously about there is this patient population. And I think the statistic is like 10% of all the cases from pancreatic cancer have some sort of genetic mutation. So let's talk a little bit about that. Cause that kind of goes in with signs and symptoms. Like if we were trying to make people aware of this, you know, there is this genetic component. That Absolutely. We, we so we, on. we talk a lot about family history yeah. and um, you know, there's been a lot of work looking at the genetic component around this, you know, high risk and, and who should we screen. And, you know, the first one that comes to mind is the BRCA population. As the breast cancer world is becoming more and more, uh, you know, uh, involved in, in research and, and, and genetics, the BRCA gene has come up. The BRCA gene can give you higher incidence of things like ovarian cancer and breast cancer, but also pancreatic cancer. Um Family history, you know, uh, if you have, you know, two relatives in your family who have been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, you are certainly at higher risk for developing pancreatic cancer. Um, so when you start putting that together, if someone, you know, I get referrals sometimes for patients who are being worked up for a breast cancer or other cancer and found to be BRCA positive, and they get sent to the office because they know they have a higher incidence. Um, and then you take the family history and you find out, oh, well, they've actually had one or two family members who have had pancreatic cancer. You know, those are patients that you really need to screen closely because they have all these markers now that are lining up to say they're probably at much higher risk than the general population for developing pancreatic cancer. So, you know, our genetic counselors, you know, I just, for instance, I just did a community event where uh, it was out in the community and it was all focused around pancreatic cancer because of the, the month of November and pancreatic cancer awareness. And we had a whole conversation around uh, family history and high risk. And I had multiple people come up to me at the end and say, hey, listen, I have, you know, my dad and my brother or my uncle and my sister or, you know, whatever. I have this deep family history and what do I do? And my recommendation to those people is the first thing to do is to go see a genetic counselor. 
And at Hartford Healthcare here, we have a robust fleet of these genetic counselors that we can get you plugged in with. And they do a very detailed family history and determine if you do meet the criteria to then go on and get the genetic testing. And they can set you up with the genetic testing. And then if you do come back positive for some of these genetic mutations, then they can plug you into the right resources for screening. But until you take that first step to actually reach out and get yourself checked, the ball is in your court. You know, it's up to you to take that initiative. And once you do, we can help you all along the rest of the journey. But I would just stress to folks out there listening to this, if you have a strong family history, take the step to get yourself checked out. It could save your life. It's so powerful. And I think that's something that I hopefully the audience listening at home takes to heart because as we've talked here for the last uh, you know half hour, 45 minutes about how difficult this disease is, but it, you know, signs and symptoms as we go into here, you know, if you know you have a, you know, this genetic mutation that potentially could lead to this disease, it's better to be in front of this. And we do know with a lot of cancers and a lot of diseases that screening saves lives. So potentially if you have this genetic mutation, when you get into one of these screening protocols or screening programs and these high risk programs, the odds of beating this thing go up exponentially Absolutely. and finding it early. I mean, it's just so amazing to me um, that we have this ability to do that, but it also is kind of amazing to me that people aren't jumping on this. I mean, there are, and I, and yeah. I don't mean any disrespect. I think people that have been through it get it. Right. Um, so those listeners at home that are listening to this and you've been through this thing called pancreatic cancer, you get that but the general public out there that are at a big risk for this. Not to say that, again, it's a, it's a 10%, but that's a big number yeah. in this in this ballgame of pancreatic cancer. But we've got to get the public more yeah. aware of this. You know, I think it's so you, powerful. you hit it on the head. Awareness is the key. Yeah. People don't know what they don't know. Yeah. And um, it's organizations like Project Purple. It's things like this podcast. It's, it's all the effort these days around education and awareness that will hopefully move that bar and, and giving people the education they need to get the proper screening. I agree. So my last question here, um, you, you recently, full disclosure here, came over from a, a another institution, another institution, not to be named, uh, here in the Connecticut area. Uh, I guess people can read believe, sure. in between the tea leaves, as they say. What are you most excited for like the next year here at Hartford? I mean, you guys, you mentioned before in the beginning, you know, you guys now have kind of, you've got Hartford and then you've got East, South, West, yeah. you've got all these centers. Um, you've got the relationship with MSK on the oncology side to offer patients here in Connecticut, you know, at, at, uh, access to trials that are going on and the research of MSK and all the great things they're doing. But what are you really looking forward to sure. over the next year? And particularly in your role as, you know, the director of oncological surgery here at Hartford Health Network. Yeah. So I, I'm really excited about the next year. And, and I think part of it is Hartford Healthcare has so many great things going on and so much growth. And we're really putting a lot of attention around building a system-wide hepatobiliary care. And what that really means is pulling together all the resources for the patient. And what that means is things like nurse navigators. So we have nurse navigators. You know, it's incredibly scary when you get the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. And 
managing the, the litany of tests and appointments and, and the, the whole pathway through that process can be a challenge for folks. So we have navigators to help through that journey. We have multidisciplinary tumor boards that meet weekly now that are working tumor boards where every new pancreatic cancer case is presented to a multidisciplinary team of radiation oncologists, medical oncologists, surgical oncologists, pathologists, um, everybody who, who has a piece in the care. And we as a group come up with the consensus of you know, what we feel the ideal path for that patient is. Every patient gets, get, gets exposure to that. We have access to clinical trials um, through Memorial Sloan Kettering and, uh, and other national trials. Um, we have, we're really working hard on the patient experience side to make it uh, an easy transition for the patient through these different avenues and making sure that every aspect of the patient is, is managed, things like nutrition, patient wellness. Uh, we're doing work with geriatric surgical oncology. Pancreatic cancer, as we know, is a disease that tends to happen later in age, average age, 60, 70 or so. So that older population can sometimes, you know, be at higher risk for things like delirium and confusion. And we have people who are screening these patients to see what measures we can put in place before surgery and before treatment to really make sure their quality of life is maintained afterwards. Um, really focusing access. So that's another huge piece, access. We're developing a single phone number where you can call and get immediately plugged in and be seen within a few days. You know, the last thing you want to do is know that, you know, you have this diagnosis and it's going to be two weeks before you're going to be able to be seen by somebody. That's the scariest two weeks of your life. So how do we give uh, strong access so they can be seen within a few days? You know, we have uh, cutting edge GI uh, folks here with uh, Connecticut GI, which is one of the largest groups in the state, that we can get patients, you know, a lot of pancreatic uh, care has a component of GI, whether it's for stenting or whether it's for endoscopic ultrasound or other things. The GI folks play such a key role. And we have a world-class GI group that we work with. Um, we really have all the pieces of the puzzle. And we are working to build that at a systems level so that no matter where you are in the system, you're going to get the same quality, the same experience, um, and hopefully the best outcomes anywhere in the state. Awesome. Well, I look forward to seeing this evolve and grow. It's amazing, you know, the the strides that you've made here and, and the time you've been here um, since we know each other. I yeah. kind of have a an insider track uh, a bit in, in terms of what's going on. And uh, we also thank you for all you do for Project Purple. It's been great to have you on this journey. That's probably another episode to, to share how you got on this journey, which is right. kind of funny. Last thing here, Brett, and probably one of the most important things, if there's someone listening to this podcast that lives here locally, or maybe someone just throughout the country, and, and might, there might be something here on the podcast that you said that might spark their interest, what's the best way for them to find out more about Hartford, maybe connect with you potentially if they want to kind of uh, circle back with you and and find out a little bit more about what you guys are doing here in the Hartford area and throughout the state of Connecticut, I should say. Yeah. So um, there are multiple ways. We have uh, navigators that we can plug you in with. Uh, there's the website at hartfordhealthcare.org slash cancer. And I'll give my office phone number. It's uh, 
860-696-2040. Again, 860-696-2040. I'm happy to take any phone calls from anybody. And even if I'm not the right person, I can certainly help plug you in with the right person. Um, so, uh, don't hesitate to give a call with any questions. Um, if you want to be seen, if you just want to say, Hey, who do I call to get plugged in with genetics? Who can help me? I'm happy to answer any questions. Awesome. Well, Brett, thank you for all you do for the pancreatic cancer community. Thank you for your involvement with project purple for me, uh, especially. And, uh, this is awesome, man. I appreciate taking time out of your busy schedule. I know this is uh, this has been a while in the making, let's <laughs> say, for our audience listening at home, but this has been great. And hopefully, our, I, I know our audience has... Uh, I learned a couple things here, which is awesome about this disease. Um, and this is what you said in the very beginning is it's all about awareness. So things like this podcast, having you come on, talk about the disease, it is so powerful. Knowledge is power. And that's one thing that I hope we're doing with our audience. So thank you again from all of us at Project Purple. And as we say, that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. Mm -hmm.